Thank you, Hayes. Thank you, Bethany. Thank you, team. Well, good morning, church. How are you? Good. It's good to see you here today. I'm glad that you've come to worship this morning. Glad that we get to celebrate Jesus Christ together. Hey, grab your Bibles, if you will. Let's go to Nehemiah chapter 2. Thank you, buddy. Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning as we continue our sermon series. We're actually beginning to round out our sermon series called Return, Rebuild, Renew. But Nehemiah chapter 2 is where we'll be as we continue on that today. Welcome to everybody who's watching us online. I know we may have a few extra this morning. Welcome wherever you are. Glad that you're worshiping there with us. For all of us, let's grab our Bibles and go to Nehemiah chapter 2. We'll start in verse 17 in just a second. Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 17 in just a moment. While you guys are turning there, let me ask you this question. What is the most important thing you have ever done in your entire life? Think about that for just a second. The most impactful, most long-lasting, the most important thing you have ever done in your entire life. Now, I imagine the answer to that question is probably going to vary depending on our age. If you are one of our kids who are in the room, we're glad that you are here this morning, you might say, I ate an entire pizza in one day. Best thing I've ever done in my entire life. My long-lasting legacy. That is what I will do. And I applaud you on such an accomplishment. I really do. Uh, you might be a little bit later on and say, man, best thing I've ever done. We won this championship when we were in middle school, when we were in high school. Me and me say, my most important thing I've ever done, I graduated college. Most important thing I've ever done was to, to get this job, to get this promotion, to do this thing. But as we get older and we've got more time underneath uh, our belts, I think that answer changes, does it not? And it could be that as you get older and you begin to reflect back on your life and look at all the things that you've done, you might begin to value things a little bit differently. It might not be that the greatest achievement of your life is to eat an entire pizza in one day. While still impressive, that may not be the thing that was the most important for you. In fact, it might not have been any of those things we just mentioned. You might start thinking now about the relationships you've built. You might not start thinking about some of the experiences that you've had. The older we get, we look back and recognize maybe the things that we thought were the most important weren't actually the most important. And maybe there are certain things that ought to really gain more importance in our esteem the older that we get. What would it be like if we knew about that while it was happening? Not just in retrospect, but while it was going on. And we're going to see that today in the middle of the text in Nehemiah chapter 2. Uh, if you have not been with us all summer, if you're new to the church, welcome. That We're glad that you are here. If you're welcome online, welcome. We're glad that you're here. But all this summer, we've been walking with the Israelites out of exile. We've been going on a journey with them. God's people in Israel had been rejecting the Lord. God warned them time and time again they would not listen. And so God finally brings his judgment upon his people. He takes them into exile. This is incredibly costly. Everything was destroyed, but God did not abandon his people. And just like he promised, 50 years later, he actually sends the first wave of returnees back into Israel. He moves the heart of a pagan king to send them back. And I just send them back, but to charge them to rebuild the nation. As soon as they get back, they laid the foundation of the temple. They wanted the Lord to be the center of who they were, but then they got distracted It'll be 20 years before they finally actually finish building the temple. But finish it, they will. The temple is now rebuilt. Sacrifices are being made. And then God would send Ezra, a scribe, to help them come back and rebuild the people. 
Because if you're going to rebuild a nation, you can't just rebuild all the physical stuff. Those things are important, the buildings, but, but that's not who the nation is. And so Ezra comes back to teach the people the law, to show them how to follow after the Lord, how to honor the Lord, all the things that they had forgotten that sent them into exile in the first place. They'd already begun to backslide. We learned a few weeks ago about how they had taken foreign wives and how they, they had to address that and repent of this. But as they continue to do this and to walk forward, God would send other people. And last week, they introduced us to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is serving under a different Persian king, but he also will be sent back to help rebuild the city of Jerusalem. And he's come back with a singular task. The thing that he has heard about Jerusalem is that the walls are still unfinished. This is a completely unprotected city. As much time as they have spent building up the city, that there's... There's no protection for that city. And so he begins to pray. And after months, the Lord sends him back with this mission. And now Nehemiah is here. That's kind of where we pick up today in Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah is here. And the first thing he does when he gets to town is to inspect the walls. He doesn't introduce himself to anybody. He doesn't tell anybody that he's there. First thing he does is to inspect the walls. And so he leads a team and they look around and there's places he can't even get to because it's still so broken down. There's just so much rubble. And after he has made his inspection, look at chapter 2, verse 17, and hear what he says. He says, then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we or his servants will arise and build, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So Nehemiah comes back into town. He says, listen, we have rebuilt the temple. We were beginning to rebuild the people, but we now need to rebuild the walls. And that may not seem like a big thing for you and I today. We don't live in walled cities. We've never lived in walled cities. But when you're living back in this time period where you don't have a lot of standing armies, you don't have a police force, there's no nuclear deterrent, okay, you need walls to prevent a neighboring hostile enemy from coming in and just wiping you out. That was a common occurrence. You needed walls. In fact, the walls of Jerusalem, before they were destroyed, had been considered to be impregnable. They were legendary. They made this a strong city. And so Jerusalem was going to be what it used to be. It needed its walls. And so here comes Nehemiah to come to encourage the people. And he does. He stirs up the entire people of Jerusalem to come and say, hey, we are now going to start this project of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And in just a moment, we're going to read some of the, about some of these people who do that in chapter 3. And if you would, if you've got your copy of God's Word, uh, go ahead and begin to kind of look ahead into chapter 3. And if you begin to look at some of those words there, you may notice that they're a little hard to pronounce. Uh, there's a lot of names and places and people there with a lot of names we're not familiar with. And already, this is just one of those chapters we typically try to skip over. We read chapters like this and just think, I don't even know how to say these words, much less understand them. And we just skip over this, but I don't want us to do that. As I was studying for this series, this is one of the chapters that I too feel that temptation sometimes, but 
Man, the Lord began to open up and show us that there's a lot here, even in the midst of some of these things that are hard to understand, that help us know what it might have been like to be in this moment and why that is so important for us. And so we're going to read the first few verses here, but before I do that, I want you to kind of put two things in your head, two things that are going to be very important. The first one is this, as we read these names, even if you can't pronounce those names, I want you to remember these were all real people. Every single one of the people we're about to name was a real person. You see, when the name is unfamiliar to us, we, 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 we want to just kind of run away from it and go, okay, I don't, I don't get that. But honestly, what we're doing is, is we're just writing them out of existence. We don't even acknowledge the reality that, look, this is not a storybook. This is not a fantasy. This is history. And we're reading about the names of very real people. Real people who lived in a very real time. People with jobs. People with families. People with kids. People who had come back to Jerusalem and were just trying to rebuild their life and and to live in the time that they found themselves. Every single one of these people is a real person. And so as we read this passage, if you find it kind of hard just to kind of navigate all these names, why don't you just imagine that these are all nicknames of people that you know? How about that? Just imagine that for every name I'm going to read, imagine it's somebody else in this room, okay? You don't know everybody in the room. You know a lot of people in the room, but I'm sure there's people here going, I don't know their name. Let's imagine it's Mushulam, all right? It's going to be one of these names. Just imagine that every time I read a name, it's like, oh, that's that guy. Oh, that's that girl. Okay, okay. These are people... In the room, people you may not necessarily know, but people with jobs and families and kids who are just trying to live and follow after the Lord. But these are very real people. Kids, you might just take one of these up as a nickname for all your friends, okay? That'll be fun. You know, okay, that's a great one, right? Use that on your friends. See what happens. Uh, but here's the second thing I want you to notice as we're walking this through. I want you to look at their occupations, Because they're going to tell us a little bit about these people. Not all of them, but some of them. You're going to hear about their occupations. And I want you to note who these people are and what they do. All right? So keep those two things in mind. Okay? Real people. I want you to note their occupations. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 3 and see what the Lord might say. It says, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. And they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. Next to him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Benah, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Jwida, the son of Paseah, and Meshulam, the son of Besedeah, repaired the gate of Yahishana. And they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Amelitiah, the Gibeonite, and Jaden, the Maranathite, the men of Gibeon, and the men of Mizpah, the seed of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harhiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Haramath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashbaniah, repaired. Akijah, the son of Haram, and Hashab, the son of Pahath-Mohab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. 
Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halasheth, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired he and his daughters. Let's stop right there. This continues on for really the rest of the chapter. You get a lot of names, you get a lot of occupations, you get a lot of people who are repairing the city. But notice what is happening here. It is the entire city. Everybody is coming to repair the city. There's not some certain class of people who are rising up to do this. It's not like there's some sort of secret clan of masons hidden within the Israelite nation who will now stand up and repair the wall. That does not exist. It's just them. It's just normal people who are going to rise up and rebuild the wall. And specifically, we're getting the little pieces of what they are rebuilding, if you read this and go, Adam, I just don't understand why this is even in Scripture, right? Like, why is this here? Dude, scripture is, is very important. Why would we, we waste a, a whole page of Scripture to just a, a list of names? What, what is this? But honestly, we still do this kind of thing in our culture. You ever been somewhere where you are walking along and all of a sudden you see names on all the bricks? You ever notice that? Or you walk up to a wall and you see names all across a thing. At my alma mater, Sanford University, if you go up to the main drag right in front of the library, there's a whole walkway there. And up down the sides, you've got all these bricks with names on them. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means for every single one of those people who bought a brick, it means this. They contributed to building all of this. They may not have gotten their name on the building, right? They aren't the one person that the building is named for, but that wasn't the only people who gave, who person who gave money. All of these people gave to make a small part of this possible. And they're memorialized with that little brick, with that little sign or placard or whatever to say, hey, listen, I gave to be a part of this. I provided a small section of this. And here you see all these people who provided a small section. Look at verse 10. It says this. It says, this person repaired opposite his house. Do you notice that? This actually gets repeated throughout the chapter. This shows up like five, six more times. It says, this person repaired opposite his house. This person repaired next to his house. What's happening? People who live in Jerusalem who need a wall are rebuilding the wall directly in front of their house. You might say, well, that's a little bit self-serving. And it kind of is. But guess what? You can't have a wall with holes in it. You need a full, complete wall. And who's going to do the section in front of your house? Well, that person is. Everybody is stepping up to say, okay, I'm going to do my portion. I can't do the whole wall. I I can't do this whole project, but I can do the small piece in front of me. I, I can do what God has put in front of me. And so this is my section of the wall that I'm going to do. And the Lord is basically putting a brick down and saying, this is the person who did that. Everybody in Jerusalem had a small part to play in building the wall. And you can see that by their occupations. Did you notice all the different occupations of the people? Let me put up this slide and I'll show you all these different things. If you go through the rest of the chapter, you see all these different types of people who were helping out. So verse one, you see priests. They're not stonemasons. That's not their job. They've never been trained to do that. They're trained in the law. But here they are with a trowel in hand, and they're doing their thing. Verse 8, goldsmiths. They don't work with stone. They work with gold. These are people who make jewelry, people who work in money. But all of a sudden, they're building walls today. Verse 8, perfumers. Did you know that they had perfumers back then? Guess what? Now you do. They had perfumers. Man, he's working with concoctions, potions, Now he's trying to build a wall. Verse 9, rulers of the sections of the city. This also shows up multiple times. Tons of the leaders. 
They're, they're not just out there saying, hey, you guys go do this. They're out there doing it. So much so that in verse 12, one of those rulers does that with his daughters. He didn't have sons, and they said, well, I guess we can't help. No, those ladies rolled up their sleeves and said, no, man, we're getting in here. Because this isn't just for a few select people. It's not for some group of masons. This is everybody, all of us. We're all going to be a part of this. Verse 17, the Levites, almost like the priests. And then verse 32, the merchants. Here are a ton of people that this is not their job. This is not what they are trained to do. This is not what they do for a living. Yet in this time, in this place, the task that God put in front of them was to build a wall. In this moment, in their history, God said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build a wall. And so they all do. They didn't say, well, I'm not not good at that or I've never done that before. They probably did say those things, but the wall still had to be built. And they were the people to build it. And so God said, all of you very real people, at this very real time, I want you to rebuild the wall. And so they did. But this is not going to go unopposed. When people begin to try to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, that's going to make Jerusalem a much more formidable city. And there's going to be opposition to this. In the same way that there was opposition when they began to lay the foundation of the temple or to build the temple. A few weeks ago, we looked at all the opposition. The same kind of tactics that they used back then are the same kind of tactics that they will use today. They also happen to be the same kind of tactics that our spiritual enemy, Satan, is going to throw at us. Whenever we try to follow after the Lord or do what he says, he will work from the same playbook. He's going to tempt us towards compromise or discouragement. He will use intimidation to try to make a stop. He will throw slander at us, maybe political wrangling, whatever he's got to do, but he's going to say, we want to stop this work. And sure enough, there are going to be people who do that here as well. So skip forward now to Nehemiah chapter four. Uh, Nehemiah chapter four, starting at verse seven. And you can see what this opposition looks like. Nehemiah chapter four, verse seven. It says, when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There's too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And all our enemies said, they will not know or see until we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us, 10 times, you must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people with their, by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. Let's stop right there. All right, so you can see it's a rough situation. Rebuilding the walls is not a one-day operation. This is not just a, hey, let's show up for a work day and it'll be done. This is gonna take a little less than two months. This is a long time. 
And as they're doing this, they get into week two, week three, and everybody's beginning to tire out. They're saying, listen, we don't have enough, we don't have enough resources to do this, and there's just too much rubble. I don't know if we can accomplish all this. The people are getting tired. I just don't know if it's going to work. On top of that, you get a bunch of people shooting rumors at us saying, hey, we're just going to come and attack you. When you least expect it, we're going to come and wipe you all out. That is an effective intimidation when you don't have any walls. When you don't have a defensive place to run back to, when, when you don't have a, a safe place to go, that is an effective intimidation. On top of that, you've got other Jews who are sowing discouragement. Oh, man, you guys just better quit. Man, just, just quit. Just abandon Jerusalem. Come on back over here. Ten times they're going to just kind of wheedle and say, man, you guys just got to quit and, and come back over here. And the people begin to flag. And what does Nehemiah do? He prays. Just like he had when he began. He says, Lord, strengthen our hands. Lord, help us. And he reminds the people, remember the Lord. Don't forget who he is. Don't forget his power. Don't forget his greatness. Don't forget his faithfulness of how he has carried us all this way through. And I guarantee you, we will see success in this. And so they began a ritual. If you read out the rest of the chapter, here's what they decide to do. They decide they're going to take half the people and they're going to put them on guard duty. So at any given point, half the people are on guard duty and they've got their sword, their spears, their bows, and they're preparing against an attack if it comes. The other half of the people would keep working on the wall. But even those people would carry weapons with them. So with one hand, they're rebuilding the wall and with the other hand, they got a weapon. And so just in case an attack happens, they can drop it at a moment's notice and run and join the battle and they would just switch off. And so you had work duty and you had guard duty and they would just take shifts back and forth and they did this till the wall was complete. Now again, remember, these are normal people. These are not trained soldiers. These are not people who have any training in doing this, and yet that's what they're being asked to do. There has never been some secret clan of warrior masons who are supposed to come up and rise up to defend the nation. Wait, is that how the Freemasons got here? What is that? I have to check that. Anyways, look, nobody does that. Nobody's ever done that. Nobody runs around with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other trying to make a, a wall over here and defending over here. Nobody's ever done that, and that's what they're being asked to do. And they do it. Even though it's not their job, even though they probably didn't feel confident, even though they were tired, even though they were a little bit scared, they do it. And you know what happens? The attack never comes. And God's plan is completed. And so skip forward now to chapter 6 in Nehemiah. After rejecting all of these intimidation tactics and all these discouraging tactics, Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15 and look what it says. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month, Elul, in 52 days. And when all of our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. In 52 days, they have seemingly done the impossible. The walls of Jerusalem have been raised yet again. The city is now defended. And who has done this? Well, the people participated, but it's the Lord who has done all of this. It is the Lord who helped them return. It is the Lord who has helped them rebuild. It is the Lord who is renewing them even now. 
It was the Lord who had made them, the Lord who didn't abandon them, even when he had every right to, the Lord who had caused a pagan king to bring them back, the Lord who had called them back when they were distracted, the Lord who didn't abandon them when they were faithless, the Lord who strengthened them and gave them these opportunities through all kinds of different pagan kings, the Lord who has been faithful all the way through has now carried out his purpose, and not only has the temple rebuilt and the people been rebuilt, but now the walls are rebuilt and Jerusalem will be secure for generations. It is amazing what the Lord has done. And so here we see the Lord fulfilling his plan for his people. But still there's a question for us that some of us have been asking this entire summer, which is, okay, that's great, and I appreciate the history lesson, Adam. That's all kinds of fun. Why is this important to me? Why is this important in my life? Adam, look, we got all kinds of stuff. I'm still working out things in my, my life with Jesus Christ. I know there's things I gotta work on. Why are we delving back into this, this Old Testament history? Why are we looking at all these things? Why is this important to me in my life? And the reason is, is that what you and I have been reading over the course of these couple months, and especially what we're looking at today, this is, this is a small picture in the midst of a big picture. This is an episode, it's a small picture In the midst of a big picture. And if you want to walk with the Lord, you have to understand both. We have to understand that you and I live in the midst of a small picture, but that is a part of a much larger picture. And you have to have both of them if we're going to truly walk with the Lord. They say, well, what does that look like here? Well, first off, let's look at the big picture. See, to understand this whole episode, not just with rebuilding the walls, but with Ezra and Nehemiah, to understand this, you can't start with Ezra and Nehemiah. You've got to go back to the beginning. These are people rebuilding Jerusalem. The people in Jerusalem are the Israelites. How did they get here? Because long, long ago, God had a plan. God looked back and says, Abraham, I'm going to call you before you were ever a nation. When you were just one man, he says, from you, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And through you, Abraham, and through your people, I'm going to bless not just you, not just your family, not just your nation. I'm going to bless the whole world. Every people, tribe, nation, and tongue, I'm going to bless the entire world through you. And so God creates his nation. He walks with them. He blesses them with their presence. He puts themselves in their midst. He tells them how to walk with him, even though they cannot do that. But God refuses to give up on them. Why? Because he's got a plan. And so even when everything pointed to the destruction of Jerusalem, God saved his people. He's going to come back even now to rebuild Jerusalem. Why? Because out of this nation, out of these people, and in this city, Jesus Christ will come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ who will come and do what no Israelite or any human has ever done before. Jesus Christ who lives a completely perfect life. Jesus who will walk the streets of Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, he will die. And three days later, Jesus Christ will be resurrected. And in this very city, in the rebuilt temple, the curtain will be torn in two. The spirit is released out into the world. And now the salvation is not simply for the Israelites. No, it's for all those nations and tribes and tongues. And ever since then, God has been bringing that salvation to anybody who would call upon the name of the Lord. It is the plan that he had from the very beginning. He says, I want everyone to come to salvation if they will put their trust in me, if they will find life and the grace, the life of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's been doing. What you are seeing here is just a small picture in the midst of that big picture. And it's not just them, that's us. We are a part of that grander story. You see, this life is not about us. 
This life is not about you. It's not about me. We are not the center of this story. God's larger unfolding story is the whole point. That's what it's all about. But in the midst of that grand unfolding story, you and I have an important part to play. See, that's the smaller picture. The smaller picture where real people like you and me at a real time, just like this one, with real tasks in front of us, God says, but in your very real life, I want you to do some very real things that are a part of this larger, grander, unfolding story. And that's what we see here. For these people, this was the task that God put in front of them. He says, in in this time, for these 52 days, I need you to rebuild the wall. Even if you are not skilled at that, even if you've never done that before, this is the most important thing you will ever do. Here's the thing. I have no idea how good of a perfumer Hananiah was. I don't know. I know that Hananiah was a perfumer, and that's it. I don't know if he was a good one. I don't know if he was a bad one. I bet Hananiah spent most of his life worried about perfuming. How to do it? I don't even know how you would do such a thing. He did. That was his whole life. We know nothing about his vocation. Here's what I know about Hananiah. At a certain point in history, he helped rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He gets recorded in Holy Scripture. I carry around a record of Hananiah and what he did. I've done it my whole life. This guy lived thousands of years ago. And the most important thing he did were not all the accomplishments in his vocation. It was the fact that he helped build the walls of Jerusalem. He was a part of God's unfolding story to protect the city of Jerusalem, that God would continue his plan to bring salvation to all of mankind through this very people. For Hananiah, that's the most important thing he was ever going to do. And so what does that mean for us in our small stories? We asked at the beginning, what's the most important thing you're going to do in your life? And we probably thought about a lot of different things. You, you might have said, it's going to be this achievement I made, or this is, I got this degree, or I got this promotion, or I got this possession, or I had this power, I, I did this thing in my life. We said, surely that's the most important thing I will ever have done. But, but what would God say? Imagine this. I want you to imagine it's a thousand years from now and the Lord hasn't returned. You know that's possible, right? It's a thousand years from now and the Lord hasn't returned. And he decides to write a new chapter of scripture, whole new book. And for some reason, it's centered on Birmingham. We are the center of the universe. I don't know why. But he says, this was the important place. And so I want to tell you about some things that happened in Birmingham. And he began to talk about what happened in this church. Again, don't know why, but he says, this was the most important thing. Thousand years later, I want to talk about some people, and he reduces our entire life down to just one or two things. What would those one or two things be? Because I bet it might not be the things that we're mostly proud of. What if he just starts talking about different stuff? Where he says, well, Philip rebuilt the greeters and made sure that this was a place that was welcoming for everybody who came in. And Doug served as a deacon and made sure that the people of this congregation were served. 
and had all kinds of things uh, happen there. Doc helped out with our students or children upstairs, played for them, make sure they had a loving place to hear about all the different things that they could do. And Christy rebuilt a Bible study and made sure to serve the ladies who were around her and taught them the word of God that they might know how to follow him. And this person created a mentor. This person created a new ministry. This person did this. What if the one or two things that God would mention that are the most important things were how we rebuilt this people? He said, that, that has eternal significance. That changed the world more than you know. Hananiah had no idea how important it was for him. He's probably sitting there going, what is a perfumer supposed to be doing here? What am I? This probably even, this is going to be the worst part of the wall. This thing's going to fall apart. It'll be the first part of the part of the wall to fall. Why am I doing this? Not realizing it was the most important thing he would ever do. And if you say, well, how do you know that? How do you know that that's what God would say about us? Well, because he tells us. I want to show you Ephesians chapter 2. This is the last passage we'll look at this morning, but this is a passage we've looked at before. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We're centuries away from the people rebuilding the wall. Jesus Christ has come and gone. He has risen from the dead, and salvation is now going not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And Paul, a Jew, has now found himself to be an apostle to the Gentiles because that salvation, that plan of God is unfolding. But he's talking to a church who are mixed with the two and listen to what he says. He says, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that at that time you were separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility and abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two. So making peace. And he might reconcile to us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. Through, through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now, check this out. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Do you know what God is doing right now in the midst of us? In this place, in this congregation, God is building a spiritual dwelling place for him to reside. Back in Hananiah's day, guess what? He was called to rebuild physical walls. But in our day, he says, no, listen, I'm, I'm interested not just in the walls. Those are helpful at a certain level. But what I'm really building is a, a spiritual building built on the foundation of the prophets. Jesus being the cornerstone, I'm going to build you up like living stones. He'll use this metaphor over and over in the New Testament. You guys are individually parts, individually stones that are going to be built up, put together in a certain way that God's presence might well and his salvation can continue to be proclaimed throughout the entire world 
And what we represent right here at Double O Community Church, specifically right here at this campus, we are the local expression of that, being put together, built up stone by stone, brick by brick in different ways that we might indwell, have the Lord indwell us, not just individually, but corporately. And it's that you and I live as the people of God. More people might hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. More people might be invited in. More people might come and experience the eternal life that you and I have now found in him. That is what Jesus is building spiritually even now. For Hananiah, they were called to build a wall to keep enemies out. That wall has been broken down, the wall of the law, the wall that made all of us enemies. That wall has been broken down by Christ. Instead, now he's not calling us to build a wall to keep people out. He's asking us to build a temple that invites people in. We get to be the people who share the glorious gospel of Christ with everyone that we meet. And every single one of you has a particular role to play. And it's different. I don't know what the wall looks like opposite your house. I don't know what it is that God's asking you to do in this particular time, in these 52 days, or this next 52 weeks, or the next 52 months. All I know is is that God is still moving. He's still sharing that gospel. And right here, right now, God is asking you to be a part of it. What might that look like? For some of you, it might be, hey, listen, I, I need you to really begin to teach. We, we talked at the beginning of the service about serving. I was saying, hey, I want to be a part of the process that helps to lead and train our preschoolers, our, our kids, our, our students, that they might grow in the wisdom and admonition of the Lord. He might call you to be a teacher in your community groups. I've never done that before. Well, that, there's always a time to begin. Maybe God's calling you to be a part of that. Uh, to say, I want to be a part of training, leading, helping. I, I want to learn. I want to study. Why? So I could share that with my brothers and sisters. Maybe he's calling you to be an evangelist, to reach out and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many people as possible, to draw them in, that they too might know the salvation that you know. People who, who are without God and have no hope, you can share the true hope in Jesus Christ. And he's calling you to share that with your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends. Maybe he's calling you to lead a community group. He's calling you to to help build up a new round of community. You say, well, Adam, it's all getting changed of like, yeah, kind of. But listen, God's doing something new. He says, we're going to have to build this now. What would it look like for you just to be active in a community group, to rebuild those connections, rebuild those relationships? Because they're incredibly important. Man, this church is not built on what happens in a couple hours on Sunday morning. This building is not the church. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Amen. And so our relationships, who God is making us to be, not just individually, but together, that is incredibly important. Is God calling you to be a part of that community, to build up that community? Maybe start a brand new group, just bolster an existing group. Maybe it's charity. God's calling you to start a new ministry. He's calling you to join one of our mission partners that we work with all over the city. Maybe he's putting a dream in you, a new missions opportunity, a a new ministry that hasn't even been birthed yet, but a way that you and I can serve and love people in the name of Jesus Christ. He's calling you to be a part of it and say, well, I've never done anything like that before. Those are exactly the kind of people that God loves to use. What would it look like for you to say in these days, even if we've never done that before, you may not feel the most competent in it. For if God says, this is what I want you to do, would we not follow through? Not just in what he did before, but what he's doing now. 
Some of you guys have been here for well over 10 years, and God has done some amazing things in this place and through us, but what's he calling you to do today? What's he calling you to do now, in this season, in this 52 days, or 52 weeks, or 52 months? Some of you are brand new. This is one of your first few times to be here, or maybe you started coming over the past years. I don't, I, I don't know any of that. That's great. If God has brought you here in this season, at this time, what's he, what's he calling you to do? How is he calling you to be involved? What does he want you to do in this season that we're in? And what could God do with all of us, with all of our different vocations, with all of our different giftings, if we pray and remember the Lord and put our trust in him? Could he not do the supernatural and have more impact than you and I ever thought was possible if we'll simply recognize in that big picture that our small picture is important and what you do is vitally needed to continue to build up the kingdom of God, the temple of God. We prayed it earlier. God, may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How does that practically occur when you and I build the wall opposite our house? When we do the things that God has called us to do today, what would that be for you? So do this for me. Bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment. It's a unique season that we find ourselves in. We didn't really expect or foresee all the things that have happened in the past few years, and yet here we are. But certain things haven't changed at all. The love of our Savior has not changed at all. His grand plan of salvation has not changed at all. His ability to use people just like us to change the world has not changed at all. And he still has dreams and desires for us right now. So let's give thanks for what he's done. But what is he calling us to do today? Right now. In this season. What's he calling? It might be new for you. It might be different. That's okay. You might not feel completely equipped for that. I feel that way every day of my life. Join the club. But the Lord is great and awesome and has been doing this through people like us for centuries. He is building up his very body right here. So what's he calling you to do? Man, if you've just had this recurring thing he just continues to bring up to you, why not listen? Why not follow? Why not continue to pray, ask for help, ask brothers and sisters to pray with you and then follow through? And see what he will do to build his life among us. The last thing we do would just be to say yes. They say, God, I'll do it. I won't just think or pray about it. I'll do it. Whatever you ask me to do, I'll do it. I'm willing to follow after you. And God will do more things through us than we could possibly ask or imagine. So, Father, thank you. I thank you what you have done in this church through these very people some of the friends I've known for a decade and more. But Lord, you've got more. More things to do. More that you have in front of us. Things that we don't fully understand, but you do. 
So, Lord, would you continue to build us together, stone by stone, person by person, knit together to be your very body. And show us what our role is in this season. Lord, we're excited to see what you do. We're excited for you to continue to get the glory. We're excited for you to have lasting impact through us that we could never have by our own desires, our own abilities. But Lord, could you continue to do that? We choose today, regardless of what it is, simply to say yes to you. To say yes. Father, we will follow after you in this season. So Father, help us, heal us. We choose you. In your name we pray. And we all said, amen. Let's worship together.